watchers in the fourth dimension. All right, unused foreign... I must be as mad as you are even to be listening to you. You've lost his Scots accent in the process, so I much prefer the original. It's a flying beastie! Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And this Earthman is a particularly fine specimen, don't you think? <laughs> well, this episode, we're off to investigate sinister goings-on in an airport in a recently animated story. It can only be the faceless ones. The writers of this story, Malcolm Hulk and David Ellis, had each separately submitted ideas to Doctor Who in the past and failed to get commissions. In fact, Hulk had been submitting story ideas ever since season one. We're now in season four. However, at some point, him and Ellis got together and Ellis said, yeah, you know what, maybe we should submit a story idea together. And their second pitch as a writing duo, which was entitled The Big Store, caught the interest of Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis. So surely a tale of how, if you keep trying, you'll eventually succeed. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Lloyd and Davis felt that it might work better if the setting were changed from a department store to an airport. And also they wanted expanded to a six-part story because they're cheaper to make. Yes, seriously. Anyway, with that, Hulk and Ellis decided that it would probably be a better idea just to start from scratch, and they retitled their story The Chameleons. Meanwhile, Lloyd and Davis had also decided that Ben and Polly weren't really working out as companions, and elected to write them out at the next possible opportunity. Annika, Wills, and Michael Craze were actually under contract until the second episode of the next story, which is The Evil of the Daleks, but Hulk and Ellis were asked to write them out at the end of the second part of The Chameleons and to include in their script a young female character who might be suitable as a new companion. David Whittaker, who was down to write The Evil of the Daleks, was given a similar request, giving the production team a choice of two potential characters for a new companion, yet ultimately it was decided to write them out in The Chameleons, although Wills and Craze were actually paid through the end of their contracts, so they basically got six weeks of free pay. Additionally, Lloyd had decided that he wanted to leave the show, so I can hear the whoops of joy from our friend Nathan Laws. And Davis was offered the producer role in his place, but he said, eh, no thank you. Instead, Peter Bryant, who'd been assisting Davis in the script editor role since the end of 1966, they decided that he should be groomed to take over. So with that, he was promoted to associate producer starting with this story. In other behind-the-scenes news, there was no incidental music composed specifically for this story, so what's in there is stock music. Jeffrey Kirkland returns as designer. He had previously designed The Underwater Menace. And costumes were designed by both Sandra Reed and Daphne Dare, with the latter making her final contribution to the show. It truly is the end of an era. So with that, it's my turn to provide the short summary of this episode. In a needlessly padded story, we get two companions disappearing in episode two, at which point we were worried that they might be about to get dodoed. The future Hooniverse Queen Victoria plays an annoying almost companion, and we have some shape-shifting aliens that lost their identities in an explosion. Someone really needs to tell them that identities are more than just physical features. So they decide to kidnap humans in shape-shifting planes, steal their identities, which results in some shape-shifting accents. Of course, the Doctor comes in, saves the day, and this time it's by negotiating with the aliens to simply go home. It's actually slightly better <laughs> than it sounds. With that, we dive into our story discussion. 
before we get started, as this one is mostly missing, let's do the obligatory item of what format did everyone watch this in? I'm I, I'm assuming most of you did what I did with the mixture of the animation and the two existing episodes. Yes. Oh, yes. I checked the loose cannon reconstructions for a few pictures just in case, but other than that, I did the animation. Okay, so we're, we're pretty much all on the same page, and we all did the black and white version rather than the color version, which I think we all think is a little blasphemous. Well, we start episode one rapidly finding that we're in an airport, and... It's a flying beastie! I love Jamie's reaction. You went exactly where I was going there, Julia. A flying beastie. <laughs> I love it. What I love about Jamie, I'm sorry, one, one thing's first. I have focused on Jamie more than I should have for all of this. But what I love about it, it's his first time like really in a Earth setting, modern day. And while he's like, oh my god, it's flying beastie, he's kind of terrified. He's still keeps going and is like, well, that was terrifying. I'm going to move on now. And I appreciate that about Jamie. He does handle it rather well. It's definitely a very different perspective to how they handled Katarina, who was a similar character from the past, wouldn't necessarily deal with moder modernity very well. But Jamie, they find a way to make it work with him. And they have a little bit of patience. I think that's Probably a big difference between the Lloyd Davis combination and the Tosh and Wiles combination, right? Don, you're not going to take the bait there? No, no, I'm not, because I have a non-Jamie related question. How many stories have Big Finish filled in between the ending of the last serial and the beginning of this one? I would need to look that up. Because how did Polly's hair grow back if they haven't filled that <laughs> gap in? Hmm... Good question. That bothered me. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a website called DoctorWhoGuide.com. And between Big Finish, comics, novels, it looks like there are about six stories between them. Fair enough. Wow, Don, are you going to actually pay attention to people's haircuts? Because I didn't even notice. It was a pretty big difference. She went from long hair to short hair to really long hair again. Yeah, I think they were just relying on everyone forgetting about what happened. Yeah, and that, was, that wasn't even the animation. That was in the actual episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One thing I loved here was the reaction as soon as a policeman shows up. It's like, scatter! <laughs> that could only possibly work in Britain. Imagine that happening in the USA. They'd all be gunned down. And Ben escapes after being a foot away from the cop. I was just imagining that, like, as that happened and seeing it in black and white and on a large open field, I was just waiting for a hard day's night to start playing. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a hard day's night. Okay, sorry. I apologize. No one needed to hear that. It's one of those things where you never split up. We always do that. This is not how this works. You're not supposed to split up because that's just how they just make the stories work. You have to split them up somehow. And I get that, but one of the questions I found myself asking is, why are they running? What is their plan here? They have abandoned the TARDIS on a runway, and they've just scattered. What Literally, what are they going to do next? Do you think they had a plan? Well, no. <laughs> That's their plan. There is no plan. <laughs> it just seems even sillier than usual. And that's saying something. 
Well, let's give it some credit. It did inject a whole bunch of pace into this serial because right off the beginning, I was like, whoa, okay, wow. All right, things are happening. Things are moving around. And then it just kind of slows down to a sludge. Every episode is about five to ten minutes too long. You could really trim this thing down and make a taut thriller out of it. And maybe it should have been four parts or something. More than likely, yes, but apparently someone was going for the the Dickie Martin Award <laughs> and ran over on Underwater Menace, so they moved this one to six episodes because it was cheaper, as you pointed out. Yeah. Anyway, in the actual plot, of course one of them, Polly, witnesses something amiss at the airport because otherwise we wouldn't have a story. And naturally she's seen on CCTV and chased by a suspicious man. Typical. At least she escaped that time. She did. And she reunites with Jamie and the Doctor. For a very short period of time, yes. And, (laughs) you know, they find this dead body and the Doctor's like, well, it's not from an actual gun. And she's like, but he's been shot. But it still wasn't a normal gun. And the Doctor just knows because the Doctor knows. Also typical. And uh, Oh, speaking of which, as we lose Polly again, so they're all walking off... I loved how Polly's walking behind them. She gets captured and the Doctor and Jamie don't even notice. (laughs) They just keep walking. Yeah, it's the old Scooby-Doo villain maneuver. They fell for it. It happens in Scooby-Doo all the time. Yeah, but this happens multiple times in the serial where someone is walking behind other two people and either tries to escape on their own or gets captured. I just think it really says something like, well, Polly's not relevant anymore. More relevant than Ben. <laughs> it's very true. Well, partly because there was no coffee being made, perhaps. That might be why they were having such trouble with this, uh, this uh, cereal. That's kind of true. How oblivious are they that they don't notice? Like, I'm usually, if I'm walking with a group of people, I try to make sure everyone is included in the conversation. So I would have been like, so what do you think, Polly? And look back and would have noticed Polly was missing pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I'm fairly certain that, you know, 1967 Britain wasn't quite like Saudi Arabia where we <laughs> to walk six feet behind the man. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree with you, Julie. It's a little off. But soon we get to meet the most useless and amusing character in the serial, the Commandant. Uh, he finally gets his shit together by, like, episode six. Eventually, but he is just such a, a middle management risen to the level of his incompetence character i'm gonna say i mean i'm middle management at work and i would get fired if i was that incompetent (laughs) and then you compare him to what is his name captain blade captain blade that is the best name ever by the way and he is super competent so you just have this juxtaposition between the commandant and captain blade and it's just like well obviously this weird group of whatever these things are, they're going to be taken over pretty easily because they have someone who's of competence running them. Except once it gets to the point of where their originals were stored. But we'll get to that in a few episodes. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think Captain Blade is so competent that he even manages to make the Doctor and Jamie look kind of stupid when they're like, hey, come look, we've got this body in this crate, and it's empty. Yeah, he's a good bad guy. But we eventually get our first view of the faceless ones. Although they kind of do have faces. It's a good title (laughs) wasted on this monster. 
It's more of the melted faceless, the yeah. melted faceless ones. Yeah. I actually thought that was pretty cool. Oh, it looked good. It's 1967, so it's 22 years after the end of World War II. And we later find out that they lost their identities in an explosion. So it's almost like images you saw of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, of, of people who survived but were horribly mutilated. It really put that image in my mind. Yes, just a bad name. Yes, <laughs> a not quite apt description. And even though it's way too early, I kept thinking, why aren't they just Zygons? <laughs> well, yeah, to your point, we're about 10 years too early. Yeah, well, here today, Zygon tomorrow. Let Zygons be Zygons. <laughs> Precisely. Anyway, episode two. This episode is fantastic because if you're a big fan of newspaper reading, this is the episode for you. Before we get to that, A, cartoon title sequence is glorious. Mm -hmm. B, I'm glad the animation, the black and white animation isn't in widescreen this time. And C, we get our first instance of a slightly modified theme arrangement. Shouldn't we have mentioned that at the beginning of episode one? It first happened in episode two, which was a strange decision. And we don't even have the actual episode. How sad. I know. I do like the new theme arrangement, though. It, it fits better with the new title sequence after five episodes mm -hmm. of having it with the old theme. I'm going on far too much about this theme that probably no one else even noticed. I know we mentioned it already about episode one, but in episode two, it's even more obvious that they're pairing up the doctor with Jamie for a very specific reason. Yes, because bye-bye Ben and Polly. <laughs> <laughs> so when we meet duplicate Polly and start hearing a little bit about her story, I love how she says in the most upper middle class British accent possible that it's her first ever visit to England and that she's actually from Switzerland. I wrote that down because it made me <laughs> laugh so hard. Like, what is this? <laughs> oh, but in this episode, yeah. and you knew I was going to bring it up, we get the airport creeper. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you, you listeners out there decide to watch the animated version of this, there is a guy in the scene where the doctor and Jamie are hiding their identities behind upside-down newspapers. Hardy, har, har. And he is totally <laughs> creeping on Jamie the entire time. Not only that, but he looks just like the character of Ray Gillette from Archer. <laughs> I don't know if it's an Easter egg, but that's what he looks like. I didn't even notice that until Don texted us, and now I can't unsee it. But I'm not going to lie, if you're going to creep on somebody, Jamie's the person to creep on. <laughs> Speaking of uh, strange little Easter eggs, the little controllers they have on their arms for the identity theft. The Wiimotes? Yeah, I was, was going to say, they look like Wii controllers. And they actually do in the real episode stuff, too, because I took a look at some of the, the reconstructions. They're pretty close. Have the BBC called Nintendo about this yet? So we start finding out a little more about Chameleon Tours, and we find out that their budget tours for the young, 18 to 25, that's a very different perspective for those that grew up in Britain in the 1990s, where they, I think they called it Club 18 to 30 or something, that were the, allegedly, I never went on one, the raunchiest holiday packages of, I allegedly turned into orgies and the like. Things that haven't aged well as, as things have changed with the times. Anyway. Yeah, we don't have that over here. No, because we're a Puritan society and it's really sad. So they're reading their newspapers and everything, and chameleon actually means something, and Ben comes to the rescue, sort of. 
<laughs> ben gets his line or whatever. He comes in for about five minutes, does something, and then disappears again. Because Ben. Because Ben. I think that's just indicative of the of serial as a whole, because it just feels like as we start off in the beginning, everyone scatters. It just feels like because everyone's scattered and everyone just kind of comes back for a little bit, disappears, comes back. And like, it's very difficult for the serial to gain any sort of momentum going into the end of it. It just seems like it's stop, start, stop, start the entire time. They start to give these little subplots, like for Ben and to go to pretend to be an employee. And then it just disappears. And the same thing with Polly. She gets her little taken over subplot. And then by the end of episode two, they're just gone. And then we introduce the what would be a good new companion introduction, but that doesn't really happen either. Actually, that's that's a good example. When she shows up, she gives the same lines at least twice about certain things, about someone not caring at all. Like you just covered that and you're repeating yourself in an already stretched out serial. (laughs) I did love how fake Polly just proved herself to be completely incompetent, mentioning someone being shot and murdered. Yeah. (laughs) Completely unprompted. And so she just gets sent back to base on the next flight. The doctor plays Columbo with her. That was good. So this is where we get Inspector Crossland rocking up for the first time, who I really like. Oh, yeah. Because he's trying to actually resolve this whole situation so we can get it over with. He's not just (laughs) dismissing everything like the Commandant. Right. He's just like talking over the Commandant like, no, you should listen to him. And And the more and more I think about it, this episode, uh, or excuse me, this serial is... Basically, I think the inspiration for Die Hard 2. person finds a body <laughs> in an airport, and a dead body, tries to convince the person in charge of the airport that they need to pay attention to it, and they don't. And there's an, well, instead of terrorists, we have the faceless ones, but it does have some similarities there. I was thinking more Airplane 2, but that works too. <laughs> airplane, Die Hard 2, what's the difference? So... I adore that little scene we get in the photo booth. Oh, that is nice, yeah. How did Jamie know how to smile at the exact same moment as everybody else? Don't ask difficult questions, Don. It honestly looked like more of a grimace than it looked like a smile. Ooh, there is that moment where it looks like Inspector Crossland is about to arrest the Doctor, and the Doctor threatens to blow everyone up (laughs) in an airport. You could not get away with putting that on screen today. (laughs) absolutely not and i love that he runs and he's like inspecting the thing that he threw and he's like oh he was lying go after him it was so nonchalantly oh this is fine they don't do a very good job of trying to go after people when they escape he went out the door what do you want me to do that's like (laughs) 20 feet come on (laughs) (laughs) one note on inspector crossland he was of course played by bernard k who had previously been Tyler in the Dalek Invasion of Earth and Saladin in the Crusade. So a little bit of uh, a recurring appearance here. Got some range there. Yeah. So I had one question. I know Mm -hmm. we mentioned Samantha and trying to find out about her brother, Uh. but was she actually hitting on Jamie? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Letting me remove any doubt there for you. Yes, she was. That's how they audition new companions. You've got to come in, hit on Jamie a little bit, and and then, uh, you know, if if you're good enough, you get to stick around. Okay. Fantastic. I get it. High standard. What I love is Jamie sticks around till season six, so I know we're going to get a lot of this from you, Julie. (laughs) My love of Jamie has already started. The other thing was is that he didn't recognize Polly's voice over the loudspeaker. Because she disappears from the kiosk, and he's like, where did Polly go? And then you hear Polly's voice, but he didn't recognize it. Jamie. 
I'm disappointed. Very disappointed. We also get the Doctor being a little bit of a kleptomaniac again in this episode. He just picks up that little stick weapon and, and pockets it. Might need it later. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, why not? The other item was, oh my gosh, in connection with Samantha's conspiracy theory, Chameleon Tours has pre-prepped postcards. The scoundrels. <laughs> How dare they? I mean, in this context, it actually makes a lot of sense. And that was why the guy got murdered at the beginning of episode one. Yeah. And then the doctor gets gassed, or was it getting cold? Or I, I don't know exactly what was going on there. That was exactly <laughs> in my notes. Is it gas? Is it freezing him? Uh, I guess it was just cold. Okay, whatever. <laughs> and that's how we end episode two. Episode three, I mean, to be fair, is where we actually find out that it was just cold and not gas. It, it You don't find that out till the next week. Yes. And just to, so you know the Chameleon Tours people are evil, they explicitly state that the Doctor must die. I really needed that after they had started kidnapping people for two episodes. You can kidnap people for good reasons, I guess. Maybe. Okay, after they killed someone in the first episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We kind of knew they were bad already. Ooh, did anyone else pick up on Jamie's very casual misogyny? No. So Samantha makes a comment, and I'm not going to attempt the Scouse accent because it would be awful, but she makes a line about, well, I suppose it would be better if I had a man with me, and Jamie just goes, I? <laughs> <laughs> That's not a statement you have to agree with. Samantha is a strong, independent woman. You can validate that while saying, well, maybe I should still come with you anyway. Maybe he wasn't really listening. The Scottish woman, uh-huh, yeah, sure. <laughs> it honestly didn't seem like he was paying all that much attention. But then when she made it very clear that she was going to go no matter what, he was like, well, I guess I do have to go with you. I think it's less misogyny, but more of a, I didn't think it was like, it's definitely not ill-intentioned at all. I didn't see anything wrong with it. Jamie's just being nice. Jeez, let him be. Anthony. Sorry, I'm <laughs> getting overzealous. I mean, it's very clear here that Sam is definitely being set up as a new companion which makes sense given the brief that uh, hulk and ellis were given mm -hmm. and pauline collins who of course will appear reappear in doctor who in 2006 as queen victoria in tooth and claw actually said thanks but no i'm good i don't want to do that which is probably a good thing because she eventually won a bafta award and also a Tony Award for play later movie called Shirley Valentine. She was also nominated for both the Golden Globe and an Academy Award for that. I think that's probably better than any companion has ever done after Doctor Who. So there's that. Just that. No big deal. Back to the story. And they go back to the chameleon yes. office again. <laughs> <laughs> Which time is this? I mean, I've, I've lost count. They go there a lot of times and it just seems odd considering that's the bad guy's basic base. Except they're like never there. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're always watching you though, because they have those cameras and those TVs and they're just always watching. There's a lot of TV watching in this serial. Quite meta. We'll go with that. Sure. There's also the whole thing with the air traffic controller, Meadows, who in some episodes in the credits is listed as George Meadows, in others he's Frank Meadows, so who knows <laughs> what his name actually is. He's actually playing twins. 
<laughs> but I, I love how the doctor's figured out that he's an alien duplicate and no one believes him and he knows no one's going to believe him and he's just sounding more and more crazy as this goes on and as soon as the doctor says there are aliens involved the commandant is going even more oh my god what is with this guy because he didn't believe him at all about anything anyway and then when he brings up aliens he's like oh good <laughs> there's a lunatic here there's a lunatic hobo in my airport <laughs> And then Jamie barges in and he's going on, I think, about the postcards. And then the commandant and the detective get together and they're whispering to each other about what they're going to do. They really don't understand social distancing because they're all (laughs) up in each other's faces. And I was just sitting there. I was like, you do realize everyone's standing right behind you. They can all hear what you're saying. You're not being secretive at all. All right, let's just move on. Incidentally, uh, uh, when the chameleons start talking about the Doctor, I mean, they're both standing there, dark suits, similar hairstyles, monotone voices. This is very much about the total loss of identity, and I really like that subtext. I just think it could have been executed a lot better. Or applied to some sort of message or meaning. Speaking of the humour in this, when the Doctor goes up to Meadows in air traffic control, he says something like, have I met you before? Oh, you must have a double. And he has like the cheekiest grin on his face. Oh, that was awesome. I adored that. Anyway, we also have Inspector Crossland, who, by the way, with his pencil moustache and his thick glasses, he looks a lot like Ron Mayle from Sparks. The band? No? No one else? No, I'm sorry. Nope. (laughs) Okay, if you're going to bring up that, I can bring up that this episode may have contributed to the naming of one of my favorite post-punk bands of all time, The Chameleons. Ooh. Which, if you haven't heard, check them out. They're very good. He uh, stumbles onto the cockpit of a plane, sees it's not a regular plane, and gets kidnapped. Captain Blade is admittedly really smooth through all of this. He's one of the more competent villains we've had in a very long time. As opposed to Meadows and fake Polly, who are both completely incompetent. So, you know, checks and balances, well, not checks and balances, but, you know, swings and roundabouts. The horrible accent may have stolen their identity, but not their incompetence. (laughs) (laughs) Inspector Crossland stumbled onto the plane, says he needs to have a word with the captain, asks him to delay the takeoff, and then do none of the passengers notice that, you know, this is in front of all the the passengers, and do none of them notice that he never leaves the plane? I mean, they must have overheard that conversation. Before they all get shrunk. They're young kids. They just want to go on their holiday. And they probably were just like, well, I guess something resolved itself. We're just going to move on. Maybe it's just an element of the post 9-11 world we live in. But anything weird on a flight, I'm immediately on edge. Yeah, I think it was a little different then. Yeah, fair. Well, how you describe these pleasure trips, the passengers are all probably high, so they probably didn't really <laughs> notice or care. It is 1967, we're about to have the summer of love, so you might be onto something there, Riley. As they disappear from their seats, cliffhanger! Which takes us into episode four. Which admittedly is a decent cliffhanger. I don't know, there's something, it's been done before in like sci-fi and later on after this, but like the, the viewing of like a full passenger plane and then boom, everyone disappears. There's something that's very intriguing to people about that. I do believe there was a Twilight Zone episode that had somewhat of a similar concept done. I can't remember the name of it off the top of me, but I'm pretty sure classic Twilight Zone series. And that would have been like five years earlier than this, four years earlier than this. Well, speaking of influences from a few years before. So after Jamie and Samantha get caught, they are put in the way of a slow moving laser along with the doctor. (laughs) 
Ah, <laughs> uh, what does that remind us of? Can you get more Goldfinger? How is that supposed to work? It could really only hit one of them. Yeah. Also, the chameleons have ray guns. Why did they not just use a ray gun? That's not very dramatic. <laughs> the guy is so incompetent that he doesn't understand that when you go to kill people, you actually have to make sure you stay there make sure that it happens and it works. Yeah, but maybe he was a big fan of the James Bond franchise, and this was his one chance to recreate that moment. <laughs> From a narrative perspective, I can only assume that this was meant to be a parody of that. I don't know. There's a lot of humor in this story. If you look at episode three, we, we talked about the double act that Jamie and the Doctor are developing, the Doctor sounding crazy to, to Crossland and the Commandant, his little quip to Meadows. I mean, there's there's a huge amount of humour here, and I, I can only think that this is meant to be a, a little bit of a comment on how ridiculous the slow-moving laser is. But the Doctor does what the Doctor does, and he's like, well, what do we have in our arsenal? Oh, we have a mirror? Yeah, let's do that. And obviously it all works out in the end. Yay. Speaking of that double act, I do love the scene where... The doctor has Jamie feigning illness so that they can sneak around the medical room. Dealing with the evil Nurse Pinto. Nurse Beam. <laughs> nurse Ratchet. <laughs> By the way, at what point do we meet the Commandant's assistant? Have we met her yet? I wanted to talk about her a little. Yeah, she's been in a few episodes so far. She gets a bit more prominent now. So little fact at, she was played by Wanda Ventham, who is, of course, Benedict Cumberbatch's mother. Neat. I was sitting there, I was like, I've seen her before. She actually played his mother in Sherlock. I went to a convention and saw them. I sat next Aww. to his dad when they were when he was eating breakfast one morning. Oh, that's delightful. Yes. I always loved, sorry, I'm going massively off track here, but I always loved in Sherlock how they actually got Benedict Cumberbatch's parents to play Sherlock's parents. I thought that was delightful. Anyway, back to the faceless ones. So they find out that Chameleon never actually lands with people on the flight. They never take anybody anywhere. They leave somewhere, but they never get to where they're supposed to be going. Like FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's that's something that USPS pulls. <laughs> FedEx seemed pretty reliable, but you know. Sorry, I'm waiting on a package. Let's move on. <laughs> don't go off on USPS. Uh-uh, no way. Anywho, Samantha is about to do something dumb, yep. uh, but then she can't. So then Jamie does something dumb. After he kisses her and steals her ticket. Also, he says he's never seen 28 pounds before. That's a lot of money. I'm like, oh, sweet summer child, the joys of inflation. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what, 1750s or whatever it was? You wouldn't have seen that much money. Absolutely not. Well, I think in the 1750s, people were just paid in like little sacks of gold coins, right? Or sheep. Yeah, not gold coins. It's going to be sheep, apples, goods, not money. I think in modern money, I mean, 28 pounds in the 1960s was probably several hundred pounds in today's money. So call it like $500, I guess. Oh, yeah, this, this is where the commandant's assistant first appears in my notes. The nurse finally <laughs> leaving the med bay after the commandant's assistant passes out. That's when we get the cupboard. Yes, yes, yes. We're back on track. I think the best part of her faking sick was when she got better, she blamed the commandant for not giving her a chance to eat breakfast. <laughs> and he is so indignant. Yes. <laughs> I think his assistant should have been a companion. Wanda Ventham as a companion. That's, that would have been wonderful. Oh, that would have been a story for the ages. 
we have the moment where Sam realizes that Jamie stole her ticket. And just as she realizes it, she's told, oh, your ticket's been found, but our manager would like to see you. And I'm just sitting there thinking, it's a trap. Hey, it took her way too long to realize that, that her ticket had been stolen. And B, how could she not realize that was a trap? Yeah, but this is where the pace picks up a little and we at least get some action scenes. We get miniaturized people and a spaceship. Well, we also get the RAF fighter chasing the plane. The plane has some sort of self-defense mechanism. Goes straight upwards, making think thinking that everyone else is thinking that it's crashing. And once again, the doctor knows what's happening, but the commandant won't believe him. Nope. Jamie survives it because he freaks out because he's never been on a plane. And he's like, well, this is awful. I'm getting sick. He goes, throws up, doesn't eat anything. So he doesn't get shrunk. And then, surprise, Jamie, not only was it your first time on a plane, it's your first time going up in a spaceship, going vertically through the atmosphere versus through the TARDIS. Yeah. I really enjoyed how they went back to reference, oh, the, the food on the airplane, that's the first part of the procedure, <laughs> yes. of, the, of the transfer of the procedure. That seems a little... A little clumsy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've been on enough flights to know not everyone eats the food. I, I, I can't believe that Jamie is the first person to not eat on the flight. But it's a whole bunch of 18-year-olds. Obviously, they're all going to eat because it's free food. That's a good point. I do love yeah. how they've drawn the space station in the animation. Yes. I was just going to say that closing shot is beautiful. Did anyone check the reconstruction to see if the space station actually looked that good? They animated part of a station for the reconstruction. It's not that great. Uh, okay. So we don't actually have a telesnap of that. Okay. Episode five. Yes. Episode five. Episode five. So the chameleons have a little bit of a uh, dim view of humanity, saying that we only have the intelligence of animals on their planet. They must have seen into the future to 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I do love how the interior of the space station, the, the cartoon design matches the kind of general future design that the BBC used at the time. We saw it on like the inside of Vicky and Bennett's spaceship in the rescue and, and in the sensorites, and it's used in things like Out of the Unknown. I really love that that's just kind of the in-house futuristic spaceship design. It helps to keep things streamlined in the same, and there's a possibility they could reuse things if they do that. Yeah, it's probably cheaper. Let's, let's be honest. The BBC in the 60s, cheap, cheap, cheap. And I love how Jamie's sneaking around through there. But he gets busted really quickly. Oh yeah, no, he's not good at it at all. But he finds the little mini people. I really would like to, I didn't check the, the reconstruction, but I do want to know what that looked like. They had to do a perspective shot to make it seem like maybe like five rafters, like a set of rafters or something, or it made them lay down and then shot from above and gave it some distance and like gave it a forced perspective to make it seem like they were really, really tiny. That's what I was guessing. See, I'm thinking they probably just used dolls. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And boy, that would look so bad. That would look so much worse. <laughs> well, that's certainly what we get when we have the master come along and he starts shrinking people. That's what they do then. Anyway. We also get, as soon as the Commandant starts coming around, that maybe something's going on, but there's no evidence. Meadows conveniently walks in at that exact time in, in air traffic control, and he's very touchy over his Wii controller. Only he <laughs> yes. can play Wii Tennis. <laughs> and I love that it's like, stop him, and she like throws a chair. <laughs> this is how you stop him. 
She really should have been the new companion. And then he breaks really easily. Oh, he unfolds like a deck chair. <laughs> I mean, he just like just starts like, yeah, sure, I'll tell you everything, whatever. But in that monotone voice, which makes it just seem like even more hilarious, it's not like some like nervous criminal that's just like, you know, fessing up. He's just like, yeah, so this is what we do. And uh, <laughs> da, da, da. I mean, just so nonchalant. No, I won't betray my. Well, OK, what do you want to know? and of course you know he says that the process can be reversed by the machine but bad things trademark will happen if done without (laughs) the ubiquitous bad things i would have loved to see how they pulled that effect it must have been like a camera like a a, a cut and then like a reaction shot then cut back and there's a pool of something on the floor is what i'm guessing how they did it (laughs) drop a water balloon What I love, too, with the nurse when we get to that part is the nurse is very competent, kind of like the Captain Blade, until obviously they then rip the thing off and she turns into a puddle. And it's Meadows that does that. Yes. It's very interesting how some of them are extremely competent and some of them are extremely not competent. There's like no in between. That's true. I mean, look at the US government in 2020. Wait, there's someone competent? (laughs) They're just a perfect mirror of humanity. This is also where we get our our next central mystery besides, oh my god, why is this six episodes long? But where are the originals of that certain batch of people? Ooh, yeah, I really wonder where. How didn't they realize it was 50,000 people missing? Yeah, how did no one other than Sam notice that? That's a really good question. I think they picked this airport for a reason. It was all Liverpoolians and no one cared. <laughs> wow. You can cut you can cut that. Probably should cut no. that. <laughs> we'll just add a disclaimer. It'll be fine. But yes, I, I just couldn't believe that there were so many people missing and we had one person complaining about it. Yeah. We also have the doctor's plan to pretend to be a chameleon and use the lives of the other chameleons to bargain with them, which seems a little cutthroat to an extent, but also seems very doctorish too. And we just happen to be at the point where all the chameleons are going to leave Earth and go and execute their nefarious plan with the 50,000 and that's enough. Which, now that I think about it, if they were that close to the end of their plan, did they really need to kill the guy at the beginning? Yeah, not really. It's fine. Just let it go. Fair enough. And then, of course, we end the episode when they realize that the doctor and the nurse are imposters and they're captured and cliffhanger, right? Right. Episode six. I noticed it in the previous episode, but they don't really mention it to this one. Jamie lost his Scots accent. Yes. And that made me so sad. <laughs> the chameleon Jamie couldn't be bothered to do the accent. Just like the uh, the chameleon Inspector Crossland lost his slight Scottish accent. I mean, it's it's time to get make the fake Scotsman speak in their actual accent, obviously. <laughs> but I just love the Doctor's reaction to it, where he's like, "I preferred the original." <laughs> I love his reaction when he realizes that the director isn't Crossland, and he's just like, "Oh, I thought that was adorable, absolutely precious." He does seem just kind of like, "Oh, I liked it." We all did, Doctor. We all did. It's at this point that we find that the originals, uh, at least of the air crew, are all still hidden at the airport. This is a terrible plan. <laughs> I realize I say that a lot in this in the show when we're reviewing these ideas, but they're leaving the planet 
and they're leaving their originals behind. Not only is that not good for safety-keeping reasons, but you gotta think those Wiimotes only have a certain range on them. You would think so. Or at least a battery life. Yeah, there's no good reason to leave them there. There's that plan, then there's the bad plan of the doctor bluffing, and then ground control bluffing, and then bluffing again. Like, everyone's just bluffing. It's like, <laughs> I don't understand. There's nothing. <laughs> it's poker. They're, they're bluffing until they find them, which they do in the backseat of a car. <laughs> that's that's their big, big safe place for the originals at an airport in the backseat of various cars. I kind of think this might have been where Matt Hulk and, and David Ellis were running out of steam, maybe. So the cars don't have climate control. So what's happening to these bodies that are just sitting there? I don't know exactly what the weather's like at that point in time, but eventually. And, and how much how much in like advanced parking have the faceless ones paid the Gatwork parking lot? <laughs> <laughs> Is what I'd like to know. There is actually a specific reference to when this story takes place. I think it's said at the very end. It's at the same time as the War Machines. July, July 66. Okay, so even in England in July, it's going to be pretty warm. So yeah, I was going to say if this took place in like January, maybe. But no, July, yeah, that's going to get pretty hot and stuffy in those cars. But even then, someone's going to notice bodies in cars. (laughs) I know. I watch a lot of true crime shows. Somebody's going to notice that. (laughs) Especially because they were all in one place. We took this one parking lot and commandeered it to place all of our people. Someone's going to notice a parking lot full of people stuck in cars. Someone's going to notice a shitload of birds flying around one specific set of cars (laughs) (laughs) during the summer circling for some reason. (laughs) (sighs) We have the bluff that we've already mentioned, but there's the lovely part where the doctor starts turning. I say lovely. I, I lovely is probably the wrong word, but the doctor starts turning the various chameleons against each other. You know, you've got the Captain Blade turns on the director, eventually shoots him. I just really like the way that all plays out. Yeah, that was good because he realizes that, well, Blade realizes that the director doesn't really care what happens to them. Also, there's that great fight scene with Sam which seems like it was probably something quite like it was out of the Avengers. And in the Avengers, there's always the fight scene in the final act, and I can just see it as being lifted directly out of that. I I really liked that. Anyway, at the end, the other thing we find is all the people that the Doctor actually likes are stored in cupboards. Yes, that was very, very nice of the chameleons. Very convenient. To put all of the main cast in one place. Makes it easier. Also, Crossland says he's going to stay on the space station just for a while to tidy things up. What? I don't understand that at all. Whatever that means. It sounds like a, like, is that a mafia threat? (laughs) (laughs) He's going to just like kill them all or something? Just so the doctor won't get his hands dirty? Inspector Crossland, secret badass. I don't know. I kind of thought he seemed to have a little something going on with the nurse. Am I wrong? Ooh, maybe. But the nurse was coming back, so why wouldn't he come back? He walked her to the plane to leave. That's how you know that he liked her, was because he's like, oh, nurse, would you like me to walk you to the plane? Aww. Yeah. Okay, well, you walked me to the plane, now aren't you going to come with me so that we can, like, grab a cup of coffee when we get back to Earth, where we live? Apparently not. (sighs) 
speaking of romance, Jamie does get a final kiss from Sam before they go their separate ways. He does. Yeah, he does. Just before Ben and Polly get sent off to visit Dodo. (laughs) (laughs) I do have a question about this ending. We come to find out that they're like, oh, we're back where we started so we can get back to our lives as if nothing ever happened. So like, bye, doctor. And then the doctor's like, well... The TARDIS is stolen, so we're still stuck here. Well, if they're stuck there, they should have been like, hey, Ben and Polly, can you help us out? At least while we're still here (laughs) until we get the TARDIS back? That'd be great. I just found it really strange that they went their separate ways and then the Doctor still stayed in 1966 for the time being. I guess we'll see what happens the next episode. Which, by the way, does mean that we have three stories that take place on the same day. Neat. Huh. Yeah. Covering at least two different Doctors. Oh. Let's talk briefly about Ben and Polly's farewell. I thought it was quite funny how the doctor basically said, Ben, go become an admiral. Polly, look after him. He's going to get himself in trouble. (laughs) And then she tells Jamie to look after the doctor. I think he said that to Ben the same way you would pat a dumb child in the head. Like, you go become an astronaut. (laughs) And then tells Polly, who he's always viewed as being very competent, go make sure he doesn't hurt himself. (laughs) Make some coffee for him. (laughs) And the one thing I do appreciate here is they do get a better departure than Dodo. Yes. The final scene was actually filmed at the time of episode two, I believe. So it was filmed out of sequence so they didn't have to bring them back at the end of filming. But at least they got a proper goodbye scene. That's true. It's not great. And I would have liked to have seen both of them have a bit more to do in their final serial. But at least it's an ending. It's a goodbye. Yeah, very true. And the goodbye just seems so bereft of deep emotion, and maybe that's just reflective of the relationship they had, but it really just kind of seems like, uh, okay, so we've been on a couple dates, uh, yeah, yeah, you're not really, yeah, I'm not feeling this, okay, all right, well, all right, no hard feelings, bye. (laughs) That's kind of how it felt like. Well, we didn't really have as much of an emotional connection with Ben and Polly as we have with some of those prior companions. Maybe it's time for something a little little light, a little breezy. We had more of an emotional connection than we did to dodo but otherwise yeah yeah, i'm with you well there was a strong emotion with dodo but i wouldn't say it was positive i just mean in the (laughs) in the writing the way that they're handling the companions during this innis lloyd era there's not as much focus on the banter back and forth between the companions and the doctor so is is that a criticism of innis lloyd that would be a criticism and also you can tell he doesn't really know how to handle departures of companions either there you go nathan there you go That one's for you. Because that's (laughs) definitely true. (laughs) I think that takes us to the end. We've already talked about the cliffhanger with someone stealing the TARDIS. So, metrics? Camp count. I didn't find Uh, anyone that campy. Not. Could we count Don's airport creeper? (laughs) I don't know. Something in in his eye. I don't know. That mustache or something. I don't know. And that's that big grin. I'm inclined to count the airport creeper. Okay. Okay. So what? one on the camp count. I really hope if they ever find this story that he's actually in it, being equally as creepy. <laughs> we can only hope. Alright, the I'll explain later count. Don. I didn't notice anything. Did anyone else? No, no, not at all. Donada. Quarry, quarry, there were no quarries involved in the filming of this story. The scores. It's my turn to start. Wow, I get to do the short summary and the first go on the, on the scores. I know I've been fairly hard on this one. I did actually enjoy it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, 
I, it probably helped that I watched it one episode at a time. I took the opportunity because I was awake before I needed to actually start working. I, I had 30 minutes of quiet time in the morning watching an episode of Doctor Who before work. So I did stagger this one a bit, which I haven't normally been doing, at least not to this extent, which probably helped, uh, at least on the padding front. It's silly, it's flawed, but I didn't hate it. You know, it's not a story that's on the same lines as, say, The Smugglers for me. So I'm going to give this one six Wii remotes out of ten. All right, Don, you're next. I feel very similarly about this as you do. For as much flack as we've given this story, it's not a bad serial. It really just needs some of the fat trimmed off of it. I think I said in the beginning that if you cut this down to four episodes, you would have a really taut thriller. While there wasn't any original music composed for it, what's there works really well at building that tension. So I enjoyed this. It's not the greatest story in the world. It does have some flaws, especially because our companions just kind of disappear for a while and then come back just long enough to say goodbye. So I'm going to give it six and a half airport creepers out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Julie, over to you. Right now, it's seeming like we all are in very common agreement. This really just suffered from being one or two episodes too long. But there are some good bits in it. There's some good laughs. There's some good tension. And while we knew that the companions were leaving, they did a good job of trying to build Jamie up a little bit more to make sure that he would be sustainable as a lone companion for the time being. So I'm going to give it six out of ten upside down newspapers. <laughs> Ooh. Okay, Riley, you're the last. Yeah, it's pretty clear. The pace killed this for me. I mean, we start off immediately with the uh, airplane and them all scattering and running all around. And I'm thinking, whoa, we're not doing any anything like slow build. We're just going straight into some sort of mayhem. And then it just kind of burdens down into going from the commandant office to the chameleon office and back and forth and everyone's separated. No one's really talking. We have characters that are introduced that you think maybe something will come out of it, but no, not really. And it just keeps trotting along. And in Don's absolutely right. There's an opportunity that this could have been very, very, very good. But this stretching it out just like kills any sort of building of anything. And you just get lost in a myriad of people going from one location to another and back and forth and things. Oh, I thought that was supposed to be there. No, it's not. Bad pace, decent ideas. Could have been a lot of fun. The companion farewell was underwhelming to me. So I'll knock that down a little bit more. So I will only give it five and a half brave dogs out of 10. <laughs> so that gives us a story average of six out of 10 across the, the four of us, which is the second worst of the season. That is just about all we have time for this time around. We will be back next episode where we have a wonderful seven part adventure featuring a roguish antiques dealer. No, it's not an episode of Lovejoy. And in the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. And as a reminder, you can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help us out. But for now, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. Don's
Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Almost Dodoed, was recorded on Wednesday the 15th of July 2020. And always remember, you should be suspicious of anyone whose accent suddenly changes. They're either faceless aliens, or possibly John.